If you were here last week, you remember that we were talking about this revival that was happening in the not just in the church at Ephesus, but in the town of Ephesus, and that spread all throughout all throughout Asia Minor. And you'll remember how at the beginning of that sermon, I was was kind of reviewing some of the great historical awakenings or historical revivals that have swept through our area and swept through uh, the the nation and even the world. I, I've read those reports. I read those reports of revival. I read them often. I read them for encouragement as a reminder of how God can move in mighty ways through great swaths of people. But as I've read, as I, as I continue to read the reports of the First Great Awakening and the Second Great Awakening and the Businessman's Revival and the Welsh Revival, you hear me mention those all the time because those are my favorites to read about. But as I read about those and as I read about them and as I read about them more, it just burns in my heart how I would love to see that happen again. How I would, how I desire to see that happen again. But here's one thing that, that I've come to realize with each of those revivals or with awakenings or with any, any, really any reports of revival that we hear or that we see, for every instance of true biblical revival, there are dozens and dozens and dozens of instances of false revival. False fire. Just within a, the last couple of years, we, we saw reports about this great revival that was happening not too far from us in Logan and Mingo counties in West Virginia. Uh, matter of fact, it, it, most folks didn't hear much about it until it started to make some of the, the national uh, Christian broadcasting shows. But what was happening there was there were weeks and weeks of emotion-filled ex- extended meetings that were happening. They, they were happening in some of the local churches, but they were happening particularly in some of the schools, and those meetings, those emotion-filled meetings, they expanded to the point where they were too big for the churches to hold and they were too big for some of the smaller venues to hold. And they ended up being in the field house at, in the schools and on the football fields of the schools. There were some reports that I saw of over 300,000 people, 300,000, listen to me, I'm exaggerating. I'm using preacher counting there. <laughs> there were reports that I saw of over 3,000 people making professions of faith. So the question is, is was it real or was it hype? I don't know that we can fully answer that this close to that event happening. I don't know whether it was real or whether it was hype, but here's what I do know. In the months that has passed since the last of those meetings, we can look at evangelical, Bible-believing, Bible-teaching church attendance in those two counties, and we can see that it is continuing the slow, steady decline that has been going on for years. There's been no 
marked increase in faithful church attendance. Now, that's just one marker. But I also know that there's really been no difference in crime rates. There's really been no difference in reported drug usage. There's been no difference except a marked increase in overdoses. There's been no difference in the reporting that I've seen on um, illicit sexual relationships, sex outside of marriage, people living together. Now I have no doubt that, and I don't want to. I don't want to completely rain on you know pour pour cold water on the whole thing because I, I don't know. I, I have no doubt that some people were truly saved in that period of time, and that's a wonderful thing, and we should rejoice any time someone is saved. Amen. We should rejoice at that, but there's a difference in that and real revival. Real revival is something so much more. Real revival is what we see happened in this passage. This is a long passage, and and the reason I wanted to have C.J. read the whole thing was so that we could hear the whole story in context. By the way, when I use the word story, this is a real historical event. This isn't a made-up story. But I wanted us to hear the whole event in one in one account, just so that we can get the background of what's going on here. Of course, we remember the background to what happened before Paul has started his his three year time of pastoring the church at Ephesus. This is at the beginning part of his third missionary journey, and his third missionary journey really. He visited some churches, but he landed here in Ephesus and he stayed there. There was the church that was planted by Aquila and Priscilla who had been trained by Paul, but now Paul is serving as the pastor of this church and it's the longest time that he ever really served as a pastor of a church. It's the only time where he really settled down in the role of pastor, of shepherd of a church. And he was there for three years. While he was there, he was faithful, he was steady, he was bold, he was persistent. I guess to say that he settled down as the pastor of that church is, brings the wrong picture to mind. Paul never settled down. <laughs> he was always persistent in proclaiming the gospel. And it was no different during his time as the pastor of this church. He multiplied disciples in that church at Ephesus to the point that those disciples spread all throughout Asia Minor. And the Scripture says that all Asia Minor heard the Gospel through the witness of that church. And God blessed Paul's work there. God blessed that church's work there by bringing a mighty awakening, a mighty revival, a mighty movement of the Holy Spirit throughout all of Asia Minor. God brought real revival to Ephesus. So how do we know that this that we see in Ephesus was real revival and not just the kind of emotional hype that gets picked up by the 700 Club? How do we know that? Well, we know it by the fruit that we see. 
Right? We know it the same way that we know whether we're saved or not. Jesus said you will know them by what? Their fruit. Right? So we know if we're truly saved by the fruit that we bear. And we know if it's a true, real revival because we see real fruit from it. So what's the fruit of real revival? Strangely enough, the first fruit that we see is fruit of imitation. Look at verses 13 through 16 again. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. (laughs) That was a mistake, wasn't it? Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? The man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. This is one of those passages that I think it's good to turn on your imagination so that you can really see what was happening here. Can you imagine the shock of these guys? You know, they say that imitation is the sincerest form of flattery. I don't know if that's true or not, but I do know that any time that God does something amazing, that there's a mighty movement of God's Holy Spirit, I know that any time that that happens, that Satan loves to imitate it. You know, the first thing that Satan does is usually not oppose. Now, he's good at that. Usually, the first thing that he does is he wants to imitate. And just a little bit off... You know, he's a master counterfeiter, isn't he? He loves to mimic God's good works for his own purposes. The Bible describes him as appearing as an angel of light. He loves to mimic God and his works for his own purposes. He loves to do that because it distracts us. It gets us focused on the froth. It gets us focused on the emotionalism. It gets us focused on all of the things instead of focusing on God and focusing on His Word. He loves to do that because it distracts us from the Gospel. It distracts us from simple faith in Jesus and it draws our attention to emotionalism and stunts and works and exalting of human actors. Look at what happened here in Ephesus. Paul was faithfully proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ and God confirmed His Word through Paul by by allowing Paul to work these extraordinary miracles that we talked about last time, doing these extraordinary miracles through him. God was doing those extraordinary miracles through Paul so that people would know that Paul was when Paul was speaking, he was speaking God's Word and not something that he made up. God did that not so that people would start focusing on aprons and handkerchiefs. And certainly not so that other people would try to use the formula that Paul was using for their own purposes. That's what these seven sons of Sceva were doing. 
They were trying to treat the Holy Spirit like some sort of a genie that they could conjure up by using the same words like Paul was using. If Paul said abracadabra, then if we say abracadabra and we rub it the right way, then then this genie God is going to do what we tell Him to do. That's what they were trying to do. And you see how well it worked out for them, right? They got beat up and (laughs) had to run out of town naked. Listen, any time that God does a work of revival, somebody is going to try to imitate it. That's why I don't completely discount all the things that were happening in Logan and Mingo counties because God could have very well been doing a work of revival in small pockets in that. And then the thing gets co-opted or gets imitated. Most of the so-called revivals that we've ever seen in our lifetime are not ginned up by the Holy Spirit. They're not stirred by the Holy Spirit. They're ginned up by by people. It's pretty easy. If a person is gifted and has has a dynamic personality, it's pretty easy for that dynamic personality to stir up a crowd, isn't it? I mean, we got motivational speakers all over the place that do that. It's pretty easy to stir up a crowd. It's pretty easy to engage just based on personality. And then if you add Satan's desire on top of that to co-opt and counterfeit God's good works with his own deceitful works, you've got the potential for a real nasty mess. You know, that's where discernment has to come in. Discernment, I heard... uh, I heard a a pastor say not too long ago that one of the things that he thinks is the number one thing that's missing in American churches today is real true discernment. Discernment. We, We need discernment. What's interesting is in this passage, the demons were the ones who were providing the discernment. And the same thing happens today when these so-called evangelists, these so-called revivalists are exposed by their immoral lifestyles or by their abusive behaviors. The demons of the false teachers start to make themselves known. Sometimes they just can't help themselves. But we don't need to wait and rely on that kind of discernment as God's people. We need to have our own discernment. In other words, we need to weigh everything that we see according to what we see and hear. And if what we see and hear as described as revival, no matter how exciting, no matter what the wonderful reports that we see on TV or we see in Christian magazines or on blogs, no matter how exciting those numbers might be, if it doesn't line up with what we see in God's Word, it is false. When people are worked up into some sort of an emotional frenzy where they start uttering and shouting this unintelligible gibberish or they start spontaneously falling down or breaking out in uncontrollable laughter or even making animal sounds, that doesn't line up with what we see in Scripture. Amen? Those kinds of things are demonic imitations. The kind of true miraculous revival that God brings through the bold proclamation of His Word. God's going to bring revival through the proclamation of His Word, through multiplying disciples, and through a powerful movement of His Spirit. 
not through some sort of an emotional show. Mark it down. When real revival happens, Satan will do his best to try to co-opt it by imitating it. So that's the first fruit of real revival. So that first fruit, it's not real appealing, but it's a warning. The rest of the fruit that we see is blessing. The second fruit of revival is repentance. Look at verses 17 through 20. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all. And the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Also many of those who were now believers came, confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Listen, I don't care what culture you're in or what time frame you're in. Whenever a demon-possessed man beats up a bunch of false prophets, strip their clothes off and sends them down the road, that is going to go viral, right? People are going to know that that word will spread quicker than anything. And when that word spreads, people get kind of freaked out. And that's exactly what was happening here. Paul had been preaching the gospel. The members of the church at Ephesus had been witnessing and had been proclaiming the gospel. The Holy Spirit was moving in a powerful way. Hypocrites and false teachers were obviously being exposed in their midst. And the real work of revival was starting to bear fruit. People were being confronted with the reality of their own sins. See, anytime something is marketed or is seen as revival and people are just, you know, exalting and lifting up their hands and in worship and those kinds of things and there is no real repentance, then it's just emotional froth. Because anytime that we have a real, true encounter with the Holy Spirit of God, we fall down as dead. We fall down in repentance. The Holy Spirit was convicting these people and they were, as the Holy Spirit was convicting them, as they heard the Word of God, as the Holy Spirit was convicting them, they were publicly turning from their sin. Before any kind of revival can happen, the Gospel has to be preached. The Gospel has to be proclaimed. Believers have to confront unbelievers with their need for a Savior. And our need for a Savior is that we are all sinners. So people have to be confronted with that. And when the Holy Spirit of God opens their eyes to their need for a Savior, then we need to be there to point them to Jesus, who is their Savior. We proclaim, the Spirit convicts, God draws, Jesus saves. And that's what was happening here in Ephesus. Lots of people in Ephesus were responding to the Gospel, and lots of people were getting saved. They were turning from their sins. They were turning to Jesus as Lord and Master and Savior. And when we turn from, when we're convicted of our sins and we turn from our sins and turn to Jesus as Lord and Master and Savior, that means that we are no longer sitting on the throne of our own lives. We're recognizing Jesus as Lord, as King and Master. We're relinquishing the throne of our life to Jesus. Now these folks weren't just quietly praying a prayer or walking an aisle. They weren't just joining a church to get their name on the church roll. No, truly, 
Old things in their life passed away, and all things in their life became new. Another description the Scripture gives us is they were physically transported from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. That's what happens when we're saved. And that's what happens when real revival happens. Real revival brings real salvation. And when real salvation happens, we see real, genuine repentance. You know, repentance, we get confused about that. I think we we tend to think that repentance is a one-time event in the life of a believer. No, it's not. Repentance is something that happens all the time. It is an ongoing thing throughout the lifetime of a believer. See, these folks who were burning their boat, who were doing all these things, who were showing the evidence of repentance, they had already been saved. They, they didn't just repent the one time when they were saved, as the Holy Spirit continued to show them the remaining sin that they had in their lives. They turned from that remaining sin. They continued to confess their sin, and they continued to repent of their sin. You know, those are two different things, right? We, we tend to conflate those. We tend to get confused about what confession is and what repentance is. So let me help clear that up a little bit this morning. Confession... Confession is not just repeating our sins back to God so that He can erase them and get them, get us back off the naughty list just in time for Christmas. That's not what confession is. Confession, well, the reason that it's not that is because at the moment of salvation, all of your sin was covered by the blood of Christ. Past sin, present sin, and future sin. There is no sin in the life of a believer that has not been paid for already. Jesus' blood covered all your sins. You were cleansed and you were washed and you were covered for all eternity. And at the moment of salvation, you are no longer exposed in your unrighteousness before God, but you are now clothed in the righteousness of Christ. And that means that there is nothing that can take you away from Him. But the fact is that each of us, no matter how long we've been a believer, each of us still has a sin nature. As long as we live in this flesh, we still have remaining sin that we need to repent from daily. These new believers in, in Ephesus, they were still holding on to some of their old sinful practices. They were saved, they were believers, but they were still trying to hold on to their cultural practices, their cultural practices of divination and fortune-telling and witchcraft and those kinds of things. And we can sit here in the 21st century in America and we can wag our fingers at them and say, how in the world could you people call yourselves believers and still try to hold on to this stuff? But before you start to wag your fingers at them, what about your own pride? What about your own lust? What about your own greed? What about your own rebellious spirit? Now don't sit and judge these folks at Ephesus. Confess with them. 
Confessing your sins means that you're agreeing with God that your sin is as disgusting as He sees it. We live in a culture that wants to make an excuse for everything. Well, you know, the reason the reason that I blow my top and have such a horrible temper with my wife and my family, because that's the way that I was raised, you know. That's my personality type. That's not confession. Confessing is owning your sin. When the Lord shows you your sin, you own it and you say, God, I agree with you that this sin in me that you have shown me, I agree that that sin is, was sufficient to hang your son on the cross. I agree that it pleased you to crush your son so that my sin, so that that sin would be covered. Your sin, even the smallest white lie, was heinous enough that it cost Jesus His blood. Your sin, no matter how hidden, no matter how secret, was severe enough that it drove the nails in Jesus' hands and feet. Confession is telling God that you see your sin in the same way that He does. And it's telling Him that you hate your sin as much as He does. That's confession. Repentance is actively turning away from that sin. See, you can't truly confess your sin before God and remain in it. Now, are you still going to stumble? Yes. But stumbling is different than staying, isn't it? Confession is quiet. Confession happens in the quietness of your, of your heart before God. But repentance is evident. Repentance is something that others can see. But repentance always follows confession. As I said, you can't have one without the other. These folks in Ephesus, they confessed their sin to God, but their repentance was public. And the repentance was costly. You know, we see that, whatever, however many pieces of silver that, that was the worth of those books, and we, we lose the economic value of that, but estimates are that that was millions. That was a lot of money. That was a financial impact, just not in their lives, but that was a financial impact throughout that community, throughout that town. See, true repentance means that you're not going to keep the tools and the trappings of your sin laying around. Now, what does that mean for you? I don't know. I'm not encouraging us to have a book burning out out in the parking lot this afternoon. I don't know what this kind of repentance looks like for you, but I can tell you that as the Holy Spirit shows you your sin and you confess your sin before the Lord, He will show you what that repentance needs to look like. Think about it like this. Repentance is moving away from sin island 
and burning your boat so that you can't go back. Repentance is costly. And real revival will never happen without real repentance. But when real repentance happens, like verse 20 says, the Word of the Lord will continue to increase and will prevail mightily. Real revival happens from and results in real repentance. Another fruit of real revival is expansion. Look at verses 21 and 22. Now after these events, Paul resolved in the Spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem saying... By the way, there's a map in your bulletin if you want to follow along with these places. Uh, to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem saying, After I have been there, I must also see Rome. And having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. So Paul was thinking about these places that he wanted to go, but he was still staying there in Ephesus. I can't tell you how many times I've seen churches come through what what seemed like a successful series of revival meetings and everybody was on cloud nine and everybody's all uh, just uh, having a having a wonderful time about the attendance and all those kinds of things. And then just a few weeks later, it seemed like nothing at all happened. You still see the same fights. You still see the same arguments over personal preference. You still see the same nitpicking and backbiting. You still see the same petty disagreements. All the same things that happen when a church is internally focused. One of the fruits of real revival is a renewed passion to be externally focused. See, a church can't have real revival. You can't have real revival in a community if a church is internally focused. And as real revival starts to happen, we start to, we begin to, we continue to look outside the walls. Paul, even while he was in his three years there at Ephesus, shepherding that flock at Ephesus, he was still always on mission. He was still always thinking about mission. He was still always passionate about mission. As I said, this was the longest time that he ever spent at one church anywhere. It was the only church that he really pastored as a shepherd. But just because he was shepherding that one church at Ephesus didn't mean that he had lost sight of his neighbors and the nations. He knew that he was not building his kingdom in Ephesus. He knew that he was building God's kingdom from Ephesus. And there's a huge difference, isn't there? He knew that he wasn't going to be there forever, so he was praying and he was planning on the next places that he'd go. But God hadn't released him from Ephesus yet, so he led the church at Ephesus to become a sending church. You know, Timothy, as we've gone through Acts, we know that Timothy's been with, been with Paul for a long time, but here's this new fella, Erastus, that shows up on the scene. We don't know anything about Erastus. He shows up in some of Paul's other letters at the end when he's listing different names and, and things like that. But it seems like Erastus was one of these folks that had become a believer in Ephesus. And Paul was had discipled him and prepared him and all of that. And now he's taking Erastus and he's putting him under Timothy's wing and sending them off to do the work of mission in Macedonia. Listen to me. Real revival never stays at home. We, we've been blessed, and I get overwhelmed sometimes 
Um, I was just overwhelmed last night when I saw the 20-some-odd of our folks there and seeing what God is building here, folks who have a heart to be outside the walls, folks who have a heart for our community. I get overwhelmed when I see just the little tiny spark of revival that God is bringing here. We've been blessed to see that over the past few years. We've seen real repentance. We've seen God's Spirit move us beyond our personal preferences and wants and desires to build us together into a family. We've seen God start to build an intergenerational and a multi-ethnic congregation. And we've seen God make disciples, and by His grace we're going to start seeing Him multiply disciples. And as we see that, it'd be very easy to just sit and soak in the good things that God has been doing for us. It would be very easy just to sit and say, oh, isn't it it nice what God's been doing? be very easy to start to look inward. But I'm telling you, we better not. Because as soon as we start taking our eyes off the fields that are white to harvest, as soon as we drop our eyes from those fields and start dropping our eyes into our personal preferences and wants and desires as we start to lose focus on the kingdom and start to think that it's about this kingdom, our little kingdom here, as soon as that starts to happen, this little spark of revival that we've started to see here will be gone. Now, I'm your pastor. God has called me to this flock, and I have no desire in my heart to do anything else but to shepherd this flock until the day that Jesus takes me home. So, sorry if any of y'all were tired of me. I've told you, if you ever want to get rid of me, just pray for me real hard, and I'll preach myself to death, and then you can get a new preacher. (laughs) But it's it's my heart's desire to be here until, uh, until God calls us home. But by God's grace... I don't ever, ever want to get comfortable or complacent with what we have going on inside these walls. We better not ever do that. By God's grace, Parkview Baptist Church will continue to grow in our desire to be a church that is on mission outside of our walls. By God's grace, we will continue to become the sending church that He wants us to be. By God's grace, we will never be like this. By God's grace, we'll always be like this. If we want real revival to continue, if we want real revival to grow from that spark into something amazing, we had better be focused on proclaiming Jesus outside our walls. We better not be just, that we better not just be satisfied with multiplying disciples. We also better be on mission about multiplying churches as well. We better be focused on praying that the Holy Spirit will do a powerful work, not just in us, but through us. Not just in us individually, but in and through us corporately as a church. And when that happens, I'm convinced that we'll see the final fruit of revival. You notice that we have a whole lot of 
passage left. <laughs> We're only going to read just verses 23 through 27, and we'll see that the final fruit is the fruit of impact because this church at Ephesus had real impact on their community. Let's just read verses 23 through 27. About that time, there was no, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. The, the way, that was what they called uh, Christianity at that time. Verse 24, for a man named Demetrius, a silver, silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not made, are not gods. And there's a danger, not only to this trade, to, not only that this trade of ours may be, may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. You remember we talked about that temple of Artemis was an attraction that drew people. It drove the economy of Ephesus. This was a real economic impact that was going on. Now, from here through the rest of the chapter, uh, we, we just see the result of Demetrius's little rant that he has here. This is the introduction to his little rant. I encourage you to go home and read it. And if we've got any questions about it, we'll talk about it tonight at New Life Gathering. But basically, what he what he's doing is he works he works the people up into this flash mob that gets, and at the end of it, they finally get calmed down and sent home by the town clerk. But the point of the verses that we just read all the way through the end of the chapter is to show the impact that this revival in Ephesus was having on the community. It was having a devastating economic impact. You know, I've already told you that real revival won't stay in the walls of a church. That's why I'm confident to know that any of the things that I've seen, any of the little sparks that I've seen throughout my life are not these wonderful, amazing, real revivals. Because real revival can't stay inside the walls of a church. Because when real revival happens, people get saved. And when people get saved, their lives get changed. When their lives get changed, disciples start making disciples, and those disciples start making other disciples. And I'm going to tell you something really profound. Are you ready for this? Ready for profound wisdom from Pastor Jim. Saved people act differently than lost people do. True? And as more and more people become disciples of Christ, as more and more people are saved, as more and more people really start following Jesus, then fewer and fewer people will start will be having sex outside of wedlock. And more and more marriages will stay together. And fewer and fewer people will see babies as inconveniences. You see where I'm going here, right? If all of those things will happen as a result of more and more people really following Jesus, then there would be no more need for our friends at the Able Pregnancy Resource Center. 
There wouldn't be any need to provide abortion-minded ladies with alternatives because there wouldn't be any abortion-minded ladies anymore. All without one single picket, all without one single protest, all without changing one single law, all because people were getting saved. In Ephesus, this pagan temple tourism industry was suffering a huge economic downturn. And they were suffering this huge economic downturn not because the church was protesting the temple, not because of petitions, not because of politics. No, they were suffering an economic downturn because of real revival. People at the church at Ephesus were faithful to proclaim the gospel everywhere they went. They made disciples who made disciples who made disciples who made disciples. They cried out to God for His Holy Spirit to do an amazing work through them. And not only were they changed, but their whole community was changed. Listen, I long to see people in our community delivered from the bonds of drugs and alcohol. I long to see these broken families in our community. I long to see them reunited. I long to see children no longer abused and abandoned. I long to see bars and strip clubs and video poker places closed because they don't have any more customers. I long to see new churches planted. I long to see dying churches brought back to life. Do you? Do you long to see real Revival. If you do, then you need to understand that it doesn't start out there. It never starts with somebody else organizing a big meeting somewhere and live streaming it around the world. It doesn't start with that. Now, if you want to see real revival, then you need to know that it has to start with you. It has to start with your own confession. It has to start with your own real repentance. Agree with God that your sins of pride or lust or laziness or selfishness or greed or whatever are as offensive to Him, to you as they are to Him. It means you can't make, you can't keep making excuses for them. You can't keep blaming your upbringing. You can't keep blaming your environment or your circumstances or your personality or your budget. Now own your sin, confess it, and turn from it. Whatever your sin is that the Holy Spirit's convicting you of, you need to turn from that sin. Uh, um, you're not going to do it out of your own strength, out of your own strength of will. You can't do it on your own. But if you're a believer here this morning, you have victory over that sin in Jesus because He lives in you, and by His power in you, you can. Turn from from your sin by turning to Jesus. So if you want to see real revival, start with confession and repentance. But don't stop there because you need to start making disciples. Be a friend to people. And last night we had an opportunity to make new friends. Be a friend to people. And as you're a friend to people, be a witness to those new friends that you have. Speak the gospel to them. Live the gospel in front of them. Bring them into the covenant family relationship that we have in this church. And teach them to be disciple makers themselves. 
And above all else, if you want to see real revival, then beg God for it. Pray. And after you've prayed, pray some more.